Hello, brothers and sisters, and uh, welcome to this Sunday worship. It is a great pleasure uh, to uh, be speaking with my fellow brothers and sisters in the Roanoke Valley Church. Um, it is so great uh, to, uh, in this case, to at least be able to communicate something to you without being in your physical presence. But this is the next best, especially even as a return favor for uh, John's great message that he delivered to us in person um, earlier on, I think it was in the end of the summer. Um, so I just want to let you know that uh, just simply writing the notes for this message brought back so many wonderful memories from the time at the Roanoke Valley Church. I'm so grateful for so many people there. Uh, not of course, first and foremost, John and Lindsay, who've done such an incredible job there to faithfully lead the church, uh, but so many other people that sustained and fed my faith. Um, I mean, I could thank Bill and Paula Bridge, especially Bill, for uh, helping me not be the biggest numbskull or doofus at home, uh, but instead instilling some sense of right integrity and responsibility for me at home uh, in the faith while I was there. And then all the many others, the Gaineses, uh, especially for their faithful service. Um, gosh, I miss so many people uh, there, uh, Jackie and Carlos. Um, got so many students, of course, from the Virginia uh, Tech Ministry from the days that we were there. Um, and, uh, and so many others. I mean, love the Duddings, um, love all the folks, well, the McIntyres, who of course no longer live there, uh, and uh, the Bambers, the jokes, I still remember to this day. They kept me, kept me going, kept me alive. Um, so anyway, I can go through every single person there. Of course, you've received Tori back <laughs> there, and uh, so many actually of the things as far as that I even put together in these notes uh, remind me so much of the faithfulness of many that have lived there in Roanoke Valley uh, that have gone and returned and uh, continue to take the mission uh, to these parts uh, of the state um, where, um, gosh, where uh, so many new possibilities uh, are on the horizon. And um, I think that that's something that actually drove uh, those main characters of the narrative that I'm going to preach about today, and that's Matthew chapter 2. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, we know is a story, especially during this season of Christmas or Advent, uh, right, that um, we find out about the birth of Jesus, of the baby Jesus, of the promised Messiah. Uh, and I know that you have been delving into the, the, the theme of exile and wilderness, and from that place of exile and wilderness, especially in light of the pandemic in which we are still in, um, now becomes the fertile bed from which a new faith can be uh, galvanized. And in Matthew 2, we actually have a great example of what that looks like um, when, um, in this case, some somewhat unknown characters show up on the scene to acknowledge this promise. Uh, in Matthew 2, I'm reading from the NASB, it reads in verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi is how it's supposed to be read, I know we call it Magi, from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born of the king of the Jews? For we saw his star to the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, and by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you 
shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi, Magi, and determined from them the exact time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. We'll stop there, although I'll refer to a few verses later on. This actually is something that is fairly remarkable here. It's, to us, such a familiar story after having, of course, looked at so many nativity scenes over the years to see the three wise men, the three kings, the three magi deliver their gifts to the child Jesus, or in this case, really, the infant uh, Jesus, pretty much a newborn. But there's something that's supposed to be wildly strange about these three men. Now, not strange necessarily that they existed, because these three men were likely the remnants of the, the priestly caste, right, of the Persians and the Medes. So their origins go back to at least the 6th century BC, maybe even before that, to the 9th century BC. And they're likely Zoroastrian, that is, they believe in one god, uh, and they would have somewhat similar sacrificial ceremonies, although they would, they, they, and many historians claim that they would have, right, a central flame that they would always keep burning, kind of like the, right, the flame of the Olympics. Right, this eternal flame that they, that they kept going. And they believed that in this light, the fire, it was key to learning and understanding. And yes, they were astrologers, as some Bibles translate the term Magi. Right? In fact, the Simon Magus from the book of Acts, that's what Magus is. It's singular for, well, we get the word magician. It's for one of these, astrologer, scholar, mathematician, philosopher. They actually weaved together all kinds of disciplines um, for the sake of what they consider to be rulership, right? For governance, wisdom for living. So in some courts of the Persian peoples, they would have these magi, right? Or magoi, right? And, and they would hire, they, they would train them. They were usually, it was a caste. So family members trained other family members to fill this role. Um, and they provided wisdom. Um, and all of these arts and all of these, what we would call early sciences, Right? And they did. They were very, very careful observers um, of the celestial bodies because they believed that, in this case, messages were being sent through the celestial bodies about the destiny of nations. These three, perhaps a remnant of some, right, right, some kind of obsolete or no longer intact kingdom, right, probably lived on the fringes of Judea and maybe a little bit beyond to the east. But these three men, right, and of course other traditions and teachings that ensued for centuries gave them names and so forth. There, their names are given here. We just have three men from the East. They're knowledgeable enough of the Hebrew scriptures that they know someone's coming. Someone, there's a hope out there that is going to be signaled to us, not with trumpets and a huge parade. Hey, come on over. He's around. But in this case, they have to have a very focused and even attentive 
mind, and it has to be determined from one star among many. It's not as if that was the only star that was in the sky at the time. So first it's important to know that background, but especially to now hone in on how singularly amazing it is that these men were sensitive enough, devoted enough, and hope-filled enough to travel to a land not their own. And then the Greek construction of that passage actually says that when they show up in Jerusalem, they're basically asking around all over the place, hey, where's this, where, where's this child? Hey, where's this promised child? Hey, buddy, what, you know, now I'm sure they weren't going around throwing their weight around like a bunch of chumps or something, but they were very inquisitive and they assumed that other people knew about this. So it's remarkable that the emphasis on King Herod, King Herod, the one who rules, is the one that these three, right, this three, these three visitors approach and they tell him, where is the one born to be king of the Jews? When you tell a king that another king has been born, especially at that time, unfortunately it wasn't met with humility. And it says a lot about the fact that when they come and ask about this baby, this child, it's referred to repeatedly as child, the child. It doesn't even mention his name, the prophesied name, right? It says it's the child. It's quite an ironic drama that ensues when the one whose king is threatened by the birth of a little baby who has also been promised to be a king. And the king's mood and heart and attitude is reflected in the people. He's filled with nervous terror, and so are the people who serve him. Mmm. Take that in for a little bit. But when you start looking in particular here about who are the movers and the shakers in this narrative, it's remarkable that all of the verbs, that is those agents who are active subjects, making things happen on the scene, are the Maggie, the astrologers, right? They see the star in 2 verse 2. They make a diligent search for him. 2 verse 8. They find him. 2 verse 8. They see him. In verse 11, when they finally get to Bethlehem, they worship him. They, they actually say that right up front. Where is this child? We want to worship him. In verse 2. In verse 11, they actually do the worshiping. While another mover and a shaker in the scene is Herod. And all the verbs surrounding him. He assembles people. He inquires. He summons. People obey him and carry out his commands, just like I read. But it's so remarkable that all the while, the child, and that word is repeated over and over again, the child, the child, the passive one, the one who's dependent on everybody else, is somehow tied to the power of God. He's the one, right, with the help of an angel, <laughs> That's making things happen. So this whole world is topsy-turvy. It's strange. That It is true. Whereas exile and wilderness in our faith, when we feel arid, when we feel exhausted, when we feel so tired, and there have been periods, I mean, this has been a roller coaster the past seven, eight, nine months. To be have to hold together things that are deeply saddening with things that are also amazing. It's hard to hold these two things together that often repel one another. And we see that kind of repelling here. Two people that are both making things happen. A group of three men that come from a land not their own and are searching for someone to worship in fulfillment. And another who's been there all along 
it's actually in many ways the one who's the carrier, the custodian of this teaching, of this, right, in this case, the Hebrew teachings. And he's losing his mind in defensiveness, in neurosis, in some kind of fear that's crippling him. That shows us how hard it is to hold this two, these two things together. But God is not silent, is he? God is not sitting around. He's making things happen, just like God was doing through a child, an infant. And that's an important thing to be reminded of. Right at the center of this narrative is that question of desire. These three men were measuring the movements of the stars. They settled on one. They said, that star, we need to go after it. Having traveled, it could have been for a couple of weeks, it could have been for a week. We're not, necess- we're not told in the narrative. It could have been for several days. It could have been for a month that they traveled. Whatever the case, they had to keep their eye on that star. And considering that it wasn't the only star in the sky, there were many stars in the sky. Considering that they didn't grow up next to a metropolis like New York City or something, that, you know, the, the air pollution, as it were, right, or the light pollution, as it, that wasn't a factor. I mean, the night sky is clearly visible. I mean, it's an unbelievable array. It's a dazzling show of stars out up in that firmament for them. They said, it's everywhere, but there's the one that we need to focus on. And they traveled all the way there. What is the power that drives us? What is the hope that is that star for us? Because that, what it shows me in our spiritual life, there is here an opportunity for us as we enter the new year to have that level of inspiration in us to say, you know what? It is time for me to renew my, my attentiveness to God. To be attentive to, to God. To care about what God is showing me. The signs, the things that He is leading me. The things that He's showing me. I need to have a receptivity, a heart opened and attentive to God. Among all the other we sometimes say voices, or in this case, all the other dazzling, glittering and gold distractions, I must focus. Our spirituality must be grounded in attentiveness. And there are things that we could do, practically speaking, to bring us to that level of attentiveness. Maybe, maybe less entertainment earlier on in the day. Maybe some of the music that we listen to. Maybe even being aware of how we're breathing. Maybe we're a little right, a bit frantic or a little hurried. Becoming aware of all those things gives us one or two or three steps forward to develop our spirit and say, my spirit is going to be attentive to God. The details that highlight God's presence around us and his action, even in this case, if it's in humble, tiresome, and dangerous circumstances. I mean, these men approach Jerusalem. They approach King Herod. Where's this baby? I don't know. Everyone seems to be freaking out around here. I don't know. Well, in, in Micah, they have their own scriptures. They know it seems to indicate Bethlehem. We're going to follow that too. They're not these these men weren't even in themselves, you know, Jewish <laughs> Jewish men. They weren't observant. Maybe they're God fearing, but they go to Bethlehem, and they still have the fervent hope and attention. To it. We're entering basically an area for animals. That's where a King is born. That's where a king is born. If that's where God is leading us, that's where God is leading us. Throw those, right, preconceptions and prejudgments out the window. They go in there and it says they're rejoicing. 
right? There's, there's this theme that, of course, is very common to the Gospel of Luke. It says they're rejoicing exceedingly. It repeats it. They're filled with joy. This is amazing, they say. This is remarkable. Do we still have that in us during this time? Has that been drained away from us, even during the pandemic? It's time, God is telling us, fill it back up. Because I'm going to give you cause for rejoicing, even in these strange and dangerous circumstances. That's what he's saying. The Magi, Magi focused on that one star among the many, and they directed it. The second, of course, thing that they, they show is courage. They're quite courageous, these men. They did take their lives into their hands. To go into a place like Jerusalem with King Herod, not necessarily the most friendly human being on the planet, and most certainly a threatened pseudo-king, this involved a tremendous amount of risk. Right? The other people didn't pay attention to these signs. Other people saw things differently. For us, in our faith, people will see things differently. It will hurt them. It is so easy during this time to be apathetic, to grow numb. I have fought with so many bouts during this summer and of growing to a point of I just felt I don't want to feel anymore. Primarily because of what I said before about having to hold together the sad and the great. God doing great things. right? I mean, numerous teens of ours in our teen ministry became Christians. A number of other people became Christians out of the blue. Even one of our sisters, Barbara Hunter, the mother of Kim Lamite, um, she became a Christian in the, in, in the midst of dementia. Um, and then, well, actually Alzheimer's. And then she passed. She went on and her reward has, has begun. Uh, but she became a Christian during the pandemic and passed away several weeks ago. And it's, it's, it's such an, it's, 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 it was intensely joyful, but at the same time, in the midst of some very trying circumstances. I've had, I had a neighbor of mine, the gentleman who lives next door to me, younger than I am. He passed away, died suddenly the day before Easter. And then a few days ago, another one of my neighbors, who my mother lived with when she was here in the country, he passed away, also just a few years older than I am. He was so great to my mother, his wife is the coach of the, our kids here in the swim team. I mean, there's deeply painful things. But it is the ones who are faithful and attentive to God that can see God at work in all of these things. They need courage. Brothers and sisters, we are being given this courage from God, and these scriptures call us to it. You know, and lastly, they persevered, right? They were tireless. When they come and ask, where is the one named King of the Jews? Funny enough, Herod didn't say, that's me. <laughs> You're looking at him, buddy. You know, they don't say that. And they say, we wish to see him and bow down to him. It's kind of funny, of course, that they don't, it doesn't say that they first bowed down to him. They're like, dude, show us the one that's promised. <laughs> right? Let's fulfill our hope. We want to recognize the king. Everyone has that desire in them, brothers and sisters. They're willing to endure. They're willing to persevere for it. First and foremost, like these Maggie show us, there's people in the nations that really want God. They want Him. And they're willing to persevere for God. So to both call ourselves to it, but also know that people are searching. In fact, just generally speaking, who desires things that they all, haven't already been planted in them? Who desires something that they don't even know exists? 
right? I mean, I think that's an old C.S. Lewis argument, you know, that every living thing craves or desires something for which they've already had some exposure, right? Even if it's crazy. I mean, I think, I think of, you know, sometimes, you know, for the women out there, the moms, you know, the cravings that mothers get for these strange foods that sometimes they've never eaten. The other day I read about a gentleman whose wife, um, I, remember, I think her name was Shelly, uh, ended up having a craving for turnips with peanut butter. And he thought, what? You know, he said he like left his house at like 10:30 at night to go get a big bag of turnips that already had peanut butter. You know, so then it finally, you know, this craving. But that was seemed foreign. Where did that come from? Well, she'd already had turnips and she'd already had peanut butter. She just simply had a craving for combining the two of them. I mean, imagine craving something, seeking something out that does not actually at all exist. Besides the fact that that sounds logically weird, right, or implausible, it, it's something that shows us, man, we're desiring God, we're desiring something ultimate, we're desiring every human being is not only has a desire, but is willing to persevere and endure for it. And we can stand squarely in the place of that seeking for someone else. If they're tirelessly seek, we can as well. And you know, one of the things about this passage that it shows is that power is not at all what it seems to be at first. Notice, right, we will be driven to make things happen. But this text shows us what is driving this action. Even in positions of power or situations of privilege in our life, our fears have to be acknowledged. Herod did not want to acknowledge that. He acted on them and he was obsessed or consumed by them and everyone else with him as well. In fact, as we continue to read the passage, what does it end up doing? Well, the angels of God have to come through. They make things happen. They protect Joseph and Mary and the child, protect right, the astrologers, the magi, so that they can leave safely to their country. And how does it end, especially in verses 19 and 20, as it describes Herod? Dead, dead. In this position... He never got to the point of saying, you know what? I need to be ready to welcome God's moves towards something new and different. Am I ready for God to break ground? His answers were resolutely no. And what happened? He died while God's work continued. Brothers and sisters, that's the one sober, right? Very, very powerful and sober point in this passage. Let God break new ground in us. Let him do it. Whatever the status quo is for us, let him break through. He will start something new. That is what the Spirit of God is about. That is how the Spirit of God somehow prompted three men, not from that land, to come and search for whatever it was, days, weeks, or months, to find this and track this one star to come and because they said, if God is moving and shaking, if God is making things happen, we want a front row seat and we will bow and worship God. We will do it. So brothers and sisters, this is a time. If we feel like we're in the wilderness or perhaps we're traveling through it with others, all our brothers and sisters together, God is saying, remember these three. Remember how they approached enthusiastically and joyfully. Where is this child? Right? A dependent, vulnerable child because God is doing something amazing there.
and to not let any of the voices of objection, right, that that is crazy, that that is absurd. Keep your Christianity weird. Keep your faith weird. It is supposed to be. Why? Because it breaks forth where everything else is silent. Here we have that kind of example. Our hope can drive us. Our sense of attentiveness to God, to seeing God, during this time where there's so much criticism, so many critics, especially on the political front, right, both in the conservative and the liberal side, it's all a matter of let my extreme position rebuff, right, or knock down your extreme position. And your extreme views of us will be replied with our extreme views of you. And it is. It is simply seems to be a game of insult. While many, many minds want to actually come together and truly listen and truly think about what is good for the many and truly have a heart of compassion to build up, through those voices, God is showing us, man, we can start something new. We can be part of what God is doing. We can follow with that kind of attentiveness, that courage, and that perseverance because the desire for God is real. Brothers and sisters, let us stand in that place in our own walks with God and for the many that are seeking him. That's the way that God is calling us in Virginia, in the Roanoke Valley, even up here in Richmond. Love you so much. Have a great week.